This is the Urban Jellicle Podcast. Hello, my name is Michael Kelly. Thanks for listening to Urban Jellico. I'm with a good friend, Al Barth. He is a global catalyst for Redeemer City to City and has had experience with leaders and churches all across the globe. And it's very uh, encouraging for me to have my friend here with us. Welcome, Al. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Uh, why don't you please tell the listeners a little bit about what uh, you do with Redeemer? And when you can travel, when it's not COVID, uh, mm. what kind of places it takes you to and what your roles there are? Well, for the last 20 years, I've functioned in a role um, similar to what I'm doing right now. But essentially, what I've done is I've been involved with identifying, recruiting, assessing, training, uh, and then coaching uh, leaders who plant churches in cities. Um, and most of it started in New York, but I'd been involved a little bit in Europe. Um, and it, that was kind of an off, uh, uh, an offshoot of, uh, a few of us in New York city who wanted to try to do something in another city, but I got involved a little bit there. And, um, and then that led to a, a greater involvement in Europe, uh, the forming of a network there. And then the forming of networks in um, uh, the Middle East, in Africa, and then most recently in North America. So, so for those who don't know, Al, he, you were there at in the very early stages. Were you one of the first, the first, or one of the first two church plants out of Redeemer in Manhattan, or early on in that process, one of the early guys? Yeah. So there, there were three of us actually that all started in 1995. So Redeemer was about six years old at that point, and. Uh, so I, Tim uh, asked me, uh, Tim Keller asked me if I would come up from Florida to plant a church just outside the city. And two of the other guys who'd been on staff of Redeemer were uh, had just started as well. So one started in the village, uh, Greenwich Village, and then one started just up north of the city in Rye. Good. And you're living in Florida now? Yes. Super. Well, I know that uh, building church planting networks and collecting uh, are collaborating, excuse me, uh, around the globe and in cities. It, it all depends on the leaders that are there and who God's raising up. And you've given a, a lot of thought and had a lot of exposure um, to leadership development and how that comes about. So we're going to talk some about that. That'll be, I think, um, perhaps the bulk of our time together. We'll, we'll discuss your hope for the church because you are uh, hopeful and maybe even sometimes exuberantly hopeful about what God's doing in the world. We want to hear that. But uh, here's my cue up question for you. You are trying to uh, find a church planter. And so you've got two candidates in front of you. And one of them is an A-plus evangelist with C-plus leadership development skills. And the other is an A-plus leadership development guy with C plus evangelistic skills. Those are your only two candidates mm -hmm. who gets the job. Wow, boy, I, that's uh, almost an impossible question to, to an answer. I, um, I probably would go with a guy that's the A plus evangelist. Really? Uh, because a lot of the, a lot of the leadership kinds of things uh, can be learned. Okay. Uh, and, and evangelism can be learned as well, but, uh, if you're, if the point of the spear in church planting is not uh, evangelizing people, bringing people into a real intimate knowledge with Christ, 
you've got really nothing. You know, uh, oftentimes what you have is rearranging the the uh, the chairs on the on the deck of the Titanic. Uh, mm-hmm. So it may all look good, you know, but if but if you're really not serving the ultimate purpose, because you know, my my conviction is that, uh, and I think sometimes we we have said this incorrectly, mm-hmm. but that uh, uh, church planting is a derivative of evangelism, not the reverse. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I, I think Peter Wagner made this statement about church planning as the most effective means of evangelism under heaven, something like that. And he wasn't, he wasn't completely wrong in that, but I think, I think he had it, had it mixed, mixed up. Uh, and part of that is that the activity of, of planting churches that you and I and others have experienced necessitates evangelism. So it forces leaders who maybe, uh, you know, can get by without doing evangelism to actually go out there and do it. So more people come to Christ, uh, you know, kind of per, per percentage wise through church plants than existing churches, uh, because most churches are pastored by guys who are primarily shepherds, not evangelists. Well, that's true. Uh, that's you just need to go to some church planner conferences, and you can you can find that out. That's true of me. I've planted uh, one and a half churches. I say one and a half because the second was a site, and it was a, you know sort of almost an inflated church. But uh, and that's probably true of me too. You know, evangelism isn't my lead my lead gift. But what strikes me is when I ask leaders that question, uh, I often get uh, the I want a leader developer first. But what you've really opened my eyes to, even in just that brief comment, which I, I didn't know what your answer would be, is that um, those skills, leadership development skills, are generally more teachable, learnable. You can pick those up. And um, there is, not that evangelism can't be learned, but there is a, a gifting to it that can be not as easily transferable. So you've uh, obviously thought a lot about and seen a lot of uh, leadership development uh, pathways. What are some of the characteristics of effective leadership development systems and uh, leadership developers that, that you've seen that stick out in, in your experience around the country or North America or the globe? Yeah, I don't know if I can even exactly speak to that, Mike. Uh, so, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer a slightly different question. Uh, you do what you do what you want to. But, but uh, uh, you know the so in in relation to leaders themselves, I think some of the most important things uh, for, uh, for characteristics that, for leaders to have are one, a, a keen ability to listen. And, and be genuinely interested in the people that they're attempting to lead. And then second to that is a, a real teachability, a, a willingness to learn and adapt and figure out and, and, that, and that, that, that sort of thing. So any, any leadership development system, if it's not encouraging those things, I, 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 think, it's, I think it may be starting from the wrong, from the wrong uh, vantage point. I mean, there, there is fabulous stuff out there for leadership development, you know, all, all kinds of different leadership development programs and that kind of thing. Most of it is really, really useful. Um, some of it's not as not as good. But but I think you can add that to, uh, you know, to to these other these uh, uh, these other characteristics. So when I when I'm looking for leaders, when I'm trying to identify a leader, 
I'm looking for someone who can rise to the challenge uh, because he's really committed. He's not committed to making a name for himself or to creating something that'll, that'll sustain him, you know, or that sort of thing. He's actually looking to care for people and in caring for people, then pull them together into a, a body of believers that I think uh, that's what Christ describes that can uh, literally live out the faith. Um, so in, in church planning, that's, I'm, I may be rambling a bit there, but no, that's no, the I'm, I'm enjoying that. And you're, um, so let's flip the question on its head. You know, let's just, you're right. There's a bunch of stuff available about the pipeline systems and what's in place. Uh, I'll reframe the question, which you've already started to answer some in, in your response. What makes for effective leaders in, um, in urban settings? Uh, you've mentioned the ability to listen and the ability to be teachable. Uh, so maybe you could, if you can, you can give a profile of uh, using names or not using names of, of uh, an aggregate of characteristics you've seen that you would really like to see translated into more leaders around the country or around the globe. Just well, let, let me let me boot off of uh, one of the things that we're working on right now. There's a there's uh, four of us at City City that are all kind of working on this project right now. We're at, we're at, we're at a very interesting juncture in that um, there are uh, large regional networks. We call them regional networks. They're really kind of continental: Asia, India, Latin America, North America, Africa, Europe. Uh, those those kinds of things. They, they all have pretty good leadership with, within them. However, we are, we're, we're at a point where we need to try to develop the leadership that can take the movement into the next generation or two. And so in, in thinking about that and looking at the leaders that are already in place, one of the things that I spent a little bit of time doing a couple months ago was trying to identify three different kinds of, of leader. Well, that, I shouldn't say I was looking to identify three. What happened was when, when I was looking to identify the leadership that's needed, I ended up coming up with three categories. Okay. One is what I would call pace setters. I'll, I'll give that some definition. A second one is what I would call uh, uh, relational network catalysts. And a third one was what I would call network builders. And perhaps in, in, in just e even with that, with those, you know, titles, you can kind of guess at, at what they are. But so so I'll, I'll, I'll put some names uh, to it. So like Tim Keller, for instance, I think is primarily a pace setter. A pace setter is somebody who creates it and actually fleshes out all the principles of a gospel centered church and, and, and a movement. Tim, Tim would be a terrible network relational catalyst because a, a, a relational catalyst is somebody that gets out there and just meets all kinds of people. They thrive on those relationships and, and they're, they're, they're winning people over to a vision and then trying to help them figure out how to, how to get that done. The network builder is probably your classic leader. He's okay. somebody that actually looks at the whole thing. He begins to put the pieces together, everything from finances and board, you know, kinds of, uh, things to actually, oh, we need trainers, we need coaches, we need, you know, we need this piece or that piece to all, all, all fit together. So there's a guy by the name of Neil Powell, who has just begun to create a network in London. 
And he is the consummate network builder. Now, he planted a church. He did a really good job with that. And in one sense, he functioned as a pace setter in that environment. Uh, mm-hmm. But but uh, but I think his real gifting is organization, um, even though he's a good preacher and that sort of thing. But if we don't have the pace setters, the guys who can actually get out there and do it, there's nothing really to kind of model yourself after. Um, okay. And they create the kinds of churches that can provide the resources, both uh, ri- rising leaders as well as monetary you know, resources that can fund the, the thing. So, you know, our organization, which started as a, just a church planting center, I mean, that's what it was called. The only reason it came into being really was because Tim and Redeemer were willing to back an idea that really Terry Geiger had. So Terry Geiger was a developer. Tim Keller was the setting concept, defining sort of landscape guy. And then Terry Geiger came in and... and Terry was the organizational guy. But even Terry wasn't the the relational catalyst. So they, they needed guys like me or Jay Kyle or whatever who were out there you know, just engaging with all these guys and kind of identifying these leaders. Oh, this is a guy. So I remember one time when Jay and I went to Mumbai, India, and Jay was trying to figure out, you know, how to, you know, who do we choose? And it was really interesting being together. We stumbled across this guy by the name of Mark Davidson. Now Mark has not only planted a church in Mumbai, he's leading really the movement in India and particularly within Mumbai itself. Uh, but he had all the characteristics that I would look for in, in, in a leader. He had vision, he had gravitas, you know, or maybe maybe not even gravitas then. He had charisma, personal charisma, that others were drawn to him. He was kind of a Pied Piper. And then he had the ability, the courage and whatever, to begin to put it in practice and try things and create. Wow. Those, those are really rich paradigms. And tell us a little bit about the project that you're involved in. Is that going to... You're working with these regional, really continental uh, leaders. Right. Are you going to Are you going to codify that? Are you trying to embed that in these different places? What's the end game for that? Is it going to be a tool for? Well, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the program is going to look like, and I, 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 um, I don't want to gainsay, you know, uh, what it what it will look like uh, without my colleagues actually kind of, um, you know. Sure. Uh, giving their opinions, but, (laughs) but I'm going to do just that. (laughs) So here's appropriately qualified your answer. So go, here's, here's what I think that it might look like. And it's predicated on a notion, which I don't want to spend a whole time uh, defending this, but, but as I read the new Testament, uh, it appears to me, particularly from the gospel of John, that Jesus really only has 18 months with the 12. You know, we often talk about three-year ministry, but really it's halfway through that, that he's actually calling them to follow him. And basically what he does is he says, come, come on. Uh, here's, yeah, yeah, here's where I lay my head. You know, let's walk here and we'll do this and then we'll go here and, and oh, let's sit down and we'll talk about certain things, you know, and so whether it's the Sermon on the Mount or, or, or the other, you know, major pieces, you know, that he, that, that he does. But it's 18 months of pretty intense time together. I think for the leaders that we want to develop, so the regional affiliate leaders themselves, the catalysts that work with them in various parts of that region, you know, like in Africa, there's a, there's a Southern Africa, East Africa, 
West Africa, Central Africa. There's four different catalysts right now, and soon there'll be uh, one up, I think, in in, in North Africa. But um, but working with with uh, those the 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 regional affiliate leaders, those catalysts, and then also the guys that are really trying to build networks within the major cities, and and we hopefully we'll end up developing like 25 hub cities around the world. But um, they're already competent leaders. You know, they're not, they're not starting out church, planning a church. So what do we have to do with them? Well, I think we have to take them and put them in some sort of immersive type program that really nurtures them. So rather than training them, it's about developing them as leaders. So I've been looking at a program called the Aspen Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's it's one of the premier corporate training, uh, not tra- uh, not training, leadership development organizations in the world. Uh, it's pretty exclusive, you know, to get into it. And they focus on um, thirty year thirty year old to forty five leaders initially, kind of rising leadership. But then they they've created a whole network of kind of you know people that have come through it that are now mentors, and they go back and forth, but. It's a pretty simple program. It's four one-week seminars over a two-year period of time. So it's two a year. Okay. Uh, and it reminded me a little bit of what I first experienced when I went to my first D-Men you know, program. You know, it was two weeks in the winter, two weeks in the summer. And for me, it was unbelievable release to just sit and think about things that I don't normally think about. Well, these, these are basically what the Aspen Institute do, do, does is they bring together the, the best, you know, kind of presenters, moderators in the world. And they take a group of 20 leaders and they are together for six days, seven days. Wow. And they talk and they present and, and they, they, they have a curriculum that, uh, that they follow. And then after that, um, there's a yearly meeting that's one week long where they bring all anyone who's gone through that program and they're part of this kind of fraternity. And it's not just men, it's, it's men and, and, and women leaders, but they bring them together once a year where they can interface that sort of thing. I think something like that is what's needed in order to take like the guy that's leading city city Asia Pacific, his name is Guna Raman, an amazing leader. I mean, just absolutely stupendous visionary, all kind, you know, all, all kinds of characteristics, but he's got pro- he's got questions that he needs to answer, problems he needs to solve, challenges that he needs to 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 face. Sem- same with a guy in Africa, uh, Toby Myers, the guy in in Africa, amazing guy, just unbelievable how talented and gifted he is. But there's all kind there's all kinds of questions. Well, when we put those guys together in the room together, and maybe one of us is there or or not. They, they cross fertilize and all, they're all of a sudden sharing ideas and something new you know, is, is, is born that then takes them further, you know, but they're learning from each other. And I think that's part of the part of the model, what, what, what we have to do. Well, that's um, that explains uh, an important distinction that I'd, maybe you can f- fill in a little bit for us. It's related to why you weren't feeling my first question about what's involved in the elements of leadership training because uh, you're making an important distinction between training and development, partly, I think, if I'm hearing you correctly, partly uh, related to where the leader is on their on their arc of leadership. Yes. And so uh, when you're growing and developing as leader, when you have experience and you're 
uh, domain is expanding, you need a different kind of formation than you did when you were young and building the more particular skills. Is, is that the, are those the categories that, that make a difference between training and developing as you're using those two words now, or is there a better way to? Yeah, I, I haven't thought carefully about that. So, but, but, but I, I think, yes, basically, you know, so if, if you were to ask me, um, uh, what should be involved in the training of a church planner? Oh, it's pretty easy. You, you list these 18 things and you can, you can lump them into certain categories or whatever, but whether you're doing a six week program or a, or a year long program, you're going to take them through these things. Or if you're, if you're going to train an elder in a church, what are the things you need to go through? Okay. Well, there's certain theological things, but then there's certain other practical things and, and it's, it, it, it's pretty easy, but what do you do with a guy who's been an elder for 20 years? Or what do you do with the, the pastor who, who's, who's now, you know, in his fifties and really, he's really at the juncture where he can probably make his greatest contribution to the work of, of the kingdom that he, that he ever has. Many guys are not equipped to, to know how to do that. Sure. You know? And so to take, so they've got all the basics, but now, you know, how do they become this transformational leader? Oh, here are some of the elements that need to take place. But it's, but each guy is going to have different strengths and weaknesses. And uh, so that's what we're thinking. We need to actually look at each, each guy and say, okay, what does he need to advance and what will really turn his crank? You know, really, really get him excited. And the Aspen model, which I, I've not heard of that group, and and maybe that's uh, maybe their invitation to participate went into my junk folder. I don't know, but the Aspen group, uh, part of the part of that, or a central part of it, is to get those leaders in that station of in their development arc in the same room, provide some space and curriculum and then let the synergy happen and let people shape each other. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't think they've used him, but they might, but, uh, uh, but you know, can you imagine, I, you may not have a, a positive opinion. I have an extremely positive opinion of this guy, but if you were a business leader yeah. and you're 40 years old, you know, you've done well, can you imagine sitting down with Bill Gates for a week and just kind of chatting I have with a, six know, or I'm seven other key leaders? I'm in Seattle. We love us some Bill Gates up here. Well, most yeah. of it. But, well, uh, yes. You know, I, I think a lot of what Bill and Melinda have done has been unbelievably good. Oh, I you know. Nah, you know, there's critics. I don't, you know, I don't care. You know, but what value that would be to be, you know, or to sit in, in for, for in our world, to sit and be able to have relaxed, you know, conversation with Tim Keller, sure. with half a dozen, a dozen other leaders, and not be limited to okay, it's a thirty-minute lecture, and then there's fifteen minutes of, of Q and A, you know, type type stuff, or or pick out pick out the key you know, whatever key leaders that you know that, that you want to around the world, uh, you know, that kind of stuff is invaluable, and that that can you know really pour fuel on the fire uh, of a guy and help him think about okay what's what's next how do i take what i've what i've learned and what i've done and now turn it into real benefit for the kingdom you know thinking back uh to an outsider's perspective even though i've been connected with city to city uh, north america in in some formal capacity but still as an outsider watching uh but he's the pace setter leader creates uh concepts and framework that motivates young rising leaders too. 
Yes, uh, exactly. So they can have an impact. Those are a different set of skills uh, for developing those different set of needs. But I think that there's a tremendous uh, opportunity and need for the church to identify young 20-somethings, maybe even younger, and provide pathways for them because all to consider and get in and become equipped in that training level of development. Uh, we're spending a lot of time doing that with the network. That's an emphasis of ours because the 10-year-old kid that was at church asleep uh, this weekend is going to be planting a church in 25 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. And then the 35-year-old planter is going to be that pace setter or that network builder now. So we really have to think about the whole continuum of, of the life cycle of somebody's ministry. It sounds like that's what you're you're a part of now. And um, um, it's exciting and uh, stimulating to think about that. W- what do you see if I could change uh, directions just a little bit. I mentioned earlier, and pr- this is one of the reasons why I think you you see a lot of the church around the world and you see a lot of uh, of its leaders. And what is it that you're excited about? Because you are a very hopeful person about the church in the 21st century globally. And I think, too, in North America, which is a little harder to be hopeful sometimes. So tell us where that comes from. And uh, let's unpack that a little bit together. Well, yeah, you know, let me, let me just give you my perspective. Uh, and, you know, one of the benefits of this COVID time is that I've actually had a lot more time to read, you know, but, but over the last three or four years, I read quite a bit about World War One and the lead up to it. I read quite a bit about World War Two and a number of things connected to that. And, and, uh, and then I, I, I read a good bit about the, the expansion of the Ottoman Empire and how they almost took over all of Europe uh, and just the conflicts that were involved with all that, that kind of thing. And, and there, were, there were bits and pieces of this and that, you know, but it, it kind of led me to um, an observation, which, which I think is accurate. And um, if it's not, I'm glad to interact with, with somebody that doesn't think it's this way. But from my perspective, there's never been a time in the history of the world that the gospel could spread as quickly as it can right now. And it's not just a dynamic of the internet, although that's a huge thing, because now we can penetrate every crack and, and, and crevice, you know, within, you know, on, on the entire globe. But there is less warfare, there's less oppression, there's less racism. There's less, a lot of those kinds of things, even though there, there, there's plenty of that still. Sure. But, but there's less of that extent in the world. And I, you know, I see more people listening to each other and changing their minds and changing their views uh, than, than ever before. And at least in, 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 in my lifetime. Uh, but um, so even when I look at the U.S., and the, the horrible stuff that we've dealt with this year. So apart from COVID, the racial strife and all, all those kinds of things, even though I think that the church in many ways has not done a good job with handling those issues, they've been complicit any number, number of times. There are plenty of people that would go on and on about, about that kind of thing. I see more leaders listening to each other than ever before. Uh, and although I don't really like the woke term terminology, I do think quite a, quite a few people have been awakened to 
their own blindness or their own lack of seeing, you know, what the, what what the, what the realities are. So I'm actually quite hopeful about the church. You know, I, I'm um, I've been disheartened by the attractional church, mega church stuff that seemed to kind of uh, take over. Um, you know, the, you know, um, evangelical churches. Uh, and I, I think in many ways it kind of gutted the church, uh, took it, took it in a, in a really unhealthy direction direction. And that's not so much about size as it is about the, you know, the, the, uh, kind of the entertainment stuff, the, the traditional stuff. Thousands of churches of 107 people who have that, that model. It's not just about size. It's a mindset. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to the, the idea that a church is primarily a community of believers and their children, that <laughs> it warmly welcomes people from the outside. And they're trying with all their might to figure out how to faithfully follow Christ. That's what we need to get back to, because that's the change agent, you know, I, I believe. And, and, you know, I see more hunger now, and this is partly related to COVID now. I see more spiritual hunger than, I, than I've seen in, in, a, in a long time. Uh, and I think all the political strife, it's been so disheartening that many people have finally said, you know what, I don't think there's any real hope in the political stuff. So there's got to be something else. Yeah. What else? What else do I look to? What else do I in, invest in? Where do I where where do I go? So so actually, I'm 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 really hopeful. You know, one of the things I've been observing in Africa, and this this partly is probably from our perspective, but um, we are seeing now hundreds of leaders leave a prosperity theology orientation yeah. and adopt a really healthy understanding of the gospel and its application within their culture. And it's almost shocking to me, you know? I mean, one one instance uh, that is very, this happened uh, just a year and a half ago, but there was a lead pastor from Cameroon who leads a denomination of 140 Baptist leaders. He's sitting in this little seminar that the guys in, in City City Africa were, were doing, and they were they were focused on, on, okay, what really is the gospel? Let's talk about that. Well, as the leader of that kind of drilled down, here, this distinguished kind of bishop guy, uh, and and the Toby, uh, the Toby Meyer was the guy that was doing the teaching, uh, but he didn't he didn't know this was happening. But afterwards, this guy comes up to him and he said, "I can't really explain what just happened to me, <laughs> but while you were teaching, I realized I've never really understood the gospel before, and for forty years I have really not preached the gospel. Mm-hmm. I preached something else." So I'm going to make, I'm going to try to understand this as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to make sure every one of those 140 pastors that I have some leadership over understand the gospel and begin preaching as well. That's exciting. Well, that's happening now. You know, I think there have been six or seven instances that are almost identical to that one. Yeah. And that is crazy. I mean, that is really good stuff. That's wonderful to you know, hear. It literally transform the, you know, uh, Christianity in Africa. I've spent a fair bit of time in Africa, and I can I can f- feel the significance of that. There's so much to learn from the faith of the people of our brothers and sisters there, and that's one one of their challenges. I wonder what you think of this connection between the those two things that you just said. Um, you know, there's a lot of disruption in the in the church in North America. We've made some very significant mistakes historically, all throughout our history. Certainly in the last 
hundred years or so. Um, and what you said about us being more, uh, being hopeful about all that puts that in context a little bit. You know, it's a mess right now. And what we say to people, I'm going to connect it to your friend in Africa in a moment, but what we say to a couple, I, I make this analogy, we say to a couple that's finally dealing with their crap, you know, it's like you you now know why you didn't de- deal with that because it's a mess, but it's also really hopeful when you start to deal with it. You, this is why you avoided this for 25 years because you don't want to deal with it, but this brings it. And I feel like I'm hopeful that that's what's happening in the church. The way it connects to, and I want to hear your, your impact, your, your, uh, your, your sense of that analogy, but also the way that it uh, connects with the story from Africa. Uh, I think that the, the North American church, even the reformed Presbyterian types like us, we've had our own kind of uh, prosperity gospel uh, about stability and, uh, and comfort and safety and stuff like that. That's also being disrupted right now by all of this. So I'm wondering if uh, those are the connections I make when I hear those stories. I'm wondering if, if uh, they seem on track with you or resonate or you, you see those dynamics a little bit differently. Well, you know, I, I hope that that uh, that there will be somewhat of a reformation, you know, uh, among, you know, a lot of the reform types that that I think I think a lot of our brethren are very, very hard and narrow uh, in their in their outlook. Um, and, you know, even even with our, our, our own denomination, you know, I'm troubled by um, by the, the fact that that kind of stuff continues to rear its head up, you know. We never seem to be able to kill it, you know, uh, and we, we, we don't get to the place where we're really characterized by, I would say, by, by love, you know, for, for other people. So one of the things that I really appreciated about or that I appreciate about Keller is the passion and love that's behind his teaching. Yeah. One of the things that I, I really loved about, I particularly loved this about R.C. Sproul in the 70s and 80s, and I, I think he changed a little bit later on, but he was driven by a passion. Yeah. And it wasn't just about being reformed. It was actually about, you know, the 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 truth that that reformed theology was about that would get you to. So it was about grasping the grace and the holiness of God and, and seeing your utter sinfulness. You know, I liked a lot of that stuff out of Jack Miller, although he said it in ways that I, that made me a little uncomfortable or, or whatever, but, but Kennedy smart, you know, one of the older guys in, in the denomination. I mean, these guys, Frank Barker, you know, some, some won't, some won't be familiar with these names anymore. Cause they're, you know, they're, they're, they're either older have died or, or whatever, but, yeah, a lot of these guys were driven by just an unbelievable love for God and a love for people. You know, that's what we need to recapture. That's the reformation that we need to gain. And looking at, you know, who we are and maybe uh, the structures we've supported and almost idolized. If if we can look at those things and, and say, you know what, enough of that without losing the goodness of the tradition. Can we can we return to the real spirit of things? So, well, uh, those are f- good reasons to be helpful if we can point in that direction. It's a very disruptive time. It's a, if you don't know where to look, it's a discouraging time for church members and leaders in North America. But, uh, but I'm actually, I share your hopefulness. I think that we uh, have an opportunity. If we'll do two things, I think learn uh, honestly about ourselves and 
then become the kind of people you mentioned earlier. When I ask you what characteristics of leaders uh, resonate with you and you would like to see multiplied, you said they listen. And, uh, you know, we, we need to listen. We need to listen to the people that uh, are around and outside of our churches. You know, it would maybe be a good good start to listen to the people in our churches. Kind of sad that we need to say that, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but but that's that's what we need to do. So um, what does a global catalyst do when he can't travel? I guess you, you we've heard that you read and uh, spend time on your computer a lot doing Zoom. Uh, what are you looking forward to getting back to when it's easier and safer to get on a plane and go to see the people that you work with? Uh, well, there's kind of two questions there. So and I'm going to try to answer both briefly because I, I know that we're going to end our time here pretty quick. But um, I do spend an awful lot of time on Zoom. Um, so that I, that's the way that the relationships can be maintained. What's what's not there and that's missing for me is it's very hard to initiate new relationships okay. and and proactively develop things through Zoom. Um so I look forward to being back, you know, in places where I can rub shoulders with leaders and talk to them. And there's just something that happens there for a reform guy to call it magic isn't quite the right thing. But there, but there's the the spirit is present and he does things in that incarnational presence, which it, which it, which is really good. But the other thing. So I'll try to answer this briefly. And you kind of alluded to it early. But um as I was listening last March to statistics related to the Navajo Nation uh, in relation to COVID, uh, and I knew many of the statistics before, but I don't think I ever really paid that much attention. But and I don't remember the exact thing, so if, if I'm off a little bit, you know, uh, forgive me. But but what they were talking about was the Navajo Nation, the largest, most populous, you know, Indian nation on the North American continent that one third of Navajos live without um, running water, power, um, you know, you know all, all those kinds of basic things. Um, and the next third isn't that much better than that, you know, and many of them don't have internet access or, you know, they don't have good schools, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not a good situation. And evidently that's fairly indicative of many of the, you know, First Nations people in Canada or the indigenous people, um, of, of, of the US and um, so I'm mulling over this because I got time. I'm not running all over the place. And I begin thinking, you know, somebody's got to do something about all that. If the, one of the greater injustices of our nation is what, what happened to the indigenous peoples of both South America and North America, including the, the, the Caribbean. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to spend time kind of blaming and figuring all that kind of stuff out. It, it is what it is now. So how do we promote justice now? How do we help in a positive way those peoples recover the dignity that they deserve? And can we see the gospel really deeply affect those, those communities? So, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be uh, ratcheting back you know, with city okay. to city in the next, you know, three years. Uh, and even now I've ratcheted back a bit, but I've, I've, I've thought about, and this may sound crazy cause I'm 67 right now, you know, uh, you know, but, but, uh, uh, what would it look like to really get involved with first nations people? I'm excited to hear that. Uh, 
and I'm going to turn this into an invitation for you as soon as we can work it out to head out to uh, the ministry that we're involved in as a church planting network in our presbytery is on the Yakima Indian Reservation in White Swan. It's called Sacred Road Ministries, and they've been there for almost 20 years doing tremendous work. God has done really amazing things there, including starting a church called Hope Fellowship. And we currently have a Native American named Joshua Sabatawa, who is uh, on, heard a, of it. on a track to in our church planting residency program to take over the lead of that church plant. So right. Al, um, you are invited to come out here. You fly to Seattle, two and a half hour drive, and uh, we just sit and listen and watch. And because those That's things are be. critical for the church and all over the world, but certainly in North America, certainly in the West. So let's do that. All right. Good. Sounds great. I'm so thankful for your time and uh, for your ministry and friendship. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your friendship as well. And thanks for having me today. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Urbangelical is a ministry of the Northwest Church Planting Network in Seattle, Washington. If you would like to be notified of future podcasts, please visit nwcpnetwork.com and click podcasts.